invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book in the Bible. It's the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. That starts on page 1029 in the red Bibles around you. As you're turning there and getting ready to hear uh, this letter that we'll be reading, I just want to remind you this is an actual letter. It was written to real believers in Christ in a real place, in a city uh, in Asia Minor that then was called Philadelphia. Uh, It has a different name today, but it's a city, it's an actual place, and there were believers in Christ who received this letter. It was a little town. It was 30 miles away from the town of Sardis and 60 miles away from the uh, town of Smyrna, both of which we've looked at in previous weeks. It was a town that was founded in about 150 B.C. and it was strategically located. It was on a highway that really connected Asia and Europe and so had a strategic location for trade and for commerce. And the very well-known scholar of Revelation, historian of Revelation, Ramsey, said this city, perhaps more than any of the other ones, was primed to be a missionary outpost because of its location. It dealt with things like uh, volcanic activity. Uh, It dealt with... Uh, earthquakes because of that and it dealt with rich fertile soil and was known for its vineyards and uh, for producing fermented beverages Uh, it was it was a place that uh, had several name changes over the years and all of those things are pertinent to what we're going to read here in this letter that Jesus wrote to them but Jesus had only good things to say to them encouraging things to say to them and so let's read it and see what He might speak to us through this letter uh, as well today. So Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have already thought and read and sung about your power in creation. We're seeing that power even this morning as this incredible storm is plowing through the Bahamas and heading toward the eastern coast of the United States. 
And even as we think about your power in creation, we pray for all of those who are in that path storm and pray that you would protect them and watch over them, prevent the loss of life, prevent catastrophic damage. Father, as we think about the power of your creation, we are also overwhelmed as we think about the power of your redemption. And as we think about those things today and as we read this letter, I pray that you, through the work of your spirit, would help us to understand wonderful things from this portion of your word. Do it for your glory, first and foremost, Father. But we also pray that you would do it for our own good, that we truly might be ambassadors who proclaim your gospel. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the story of uh, the missionary John Patton. John Patton was born in Scotland in 1824, and he became a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, and eventually he left Scotland to serve as a missionary in what was then called the New Hebrides Islands, a series of islands in the Pacific Ocean. Today, it's referred to as Vanuatu. Uh, South Pacific Islands uh, between Hawaii and Australia, really just off the eastern coast of Australia. And there is no record of any kind of Christian influence in those islands before around 1839 when two missionaries named John Williams and James Harris arrived in the islands. Their missionary service was quite short because within minutes of having arrived on those islands, they were killed and eaten by the cannibals who inhabited those islands. About 20 years later, John Patton and his wife arrived. They were about 33 years old. Within four months, both his wife and his newborn died of what was referred to as tropical fever. Patton said that he buried the bodies on the island and he had to spend the first number of nights sleeping on their graves to protect them from the cannibals coming and taking them. He served for four more years under almost constant danger and persecution. Eventually it got so bad that they sent a ship to go and to rescue him off of the island and he was driven off of the island in 1862. He went back to Scotland. And when he went back to Scotland, he made an effort to raise more funds so that he could go back to the New Hebrides. He remarried and he and his new wife launched for the New Hebrides Islands. And they ended up staying there for about 41 years. Six of their ten children were born there, four of whom died in infancy. They learned the language of the islanders. They taught classes on basic life skills. They translated and printed the scriptures and the languages there. They ministered to the sick and the dying. They dispensed medicines every day. They held worship services every Sunday. And they trained and they sent out native teachers to all of the villages to preach the gospel. And Patton records that toward the end of his time on the islands, almost the entire island area of the New Hebrides professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Missionaries had been placed on 25 of the 30 islands and the scriptures had been translated into the languages of the islanders. Today, Christianity is the predominant religion in Vanuatu. 
Some say as high as 85% of the islanders profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Presbyterian Church of Vanuatu is the largest denomination on the islands with upwards of a third of the entire population as members of the Presbyterian Church. Now, as Patton was getting ready to leave for the first time to go to uh, the New Hebrides, one of the elders in the church that he was a part, a, a man by the name of Mr. Dixon, confronted Patton. And he said, John, don't go. The cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. And Patton recorded his response to this Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in a grave, and there eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. What would have happened if John Patton had actually listened to Elder Dixon? What would have happened if he had chosen not to go back to the New Hebrides after his four or five years of service, which by all human standards had very little fruit that was, that was shown, uh, very little evidence that they had even been there for those four or five years. What if he had chosen to not go back? What if he had... He had uh, developed a sense of indifference or apathy or even uh, anger toward the villagers who had even done such great difficulty in their own ministries? What if he had given up under the hardships of his life circumstances? What if he had given up after the death of his first child or his second child or his third child or his fourth child? The Pattons, I'm sure, would have been the very first to say that there was very little power that they had in and of themselves. And yet, God in His providence opened a door for the gospel to be proclaimed in that place such that there was a significant blessing not only on the Patton family, but for generations to come that we can see and experience even today. As they faithfully and patiently endured and proclaimed the gospel, God greatly blessed them and established his church that exists even until today. So the question that I would ask you to reflect on today that I'm reflecting on as well in my own life is why are we so afraid about proclaiming the gospel in our own lives? Why are, are we apathetic? Why are we indifferent? Why are we cynical about the gospel proclamation going out from even us? And it's even more poignant when we realize that we have much less reason to be apathetic and indifferent and angry than the Patons or countless other missionaries doing evangelism today around the world. Jesus writes this, this letter to this little church in the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor in the first century. And we know from historical context and also from the words that Jesus tells them that this little church in this little place all those years ago was busy proclaiming the gospel in word and deed in their city. 
sharing God's grace and love through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only one of the seven churches that Jesus writes letters to that actually has a church that still exists in this city that traces its roots back to the first century. Think about that and how God has been at work not only establishing this church in the first century, but preserving it through all of these years. And as Jesus writes this letter to them, he has nothing but encouragements and commendations to say to them. And today what I want us to reflect on is what we can learn, how we can be helped and encouraged through what Jesus told them so that we might be God's people through which he would use and proclaim his gospel of grace to others. So let's look and see what Jesus tells them about the reality of the gospel going out and being proclaimed, the results of it, the resources for it, and the the rewards that come as a result. So first of all, the reality of gospel proclamation. Jesus begins this letter in very familiar fashion. If you've been here as we've been looking at these other letters, uh, you see a very similar way that Jesus begins. He he begins by uh, writing this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. and, And he tells the angel to proclaim the words that he's going to give them. And then Jesus describes himself in particular ways that relate to the vision that John's been having all the way back in chapter 1. And with each church, he picks different attributes, different characteristics of himself that are particularly applicable for that church. And so how does he describe himself here to this church in verse 7? The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus says, I am the one who is the Holy One and the True One. That phrase is actually a phrase that's used only twice in the entire New Testament. Once here, and the other time is in Revelation chapter 6. And there, it's specifically a reference to God Almighty. And what Jesus is doing here by reminding them that He is the Holy One and the True One, is He is affirming and proclaiming His deity. He is God Almighty. He is the sovereign, ruling, reigning second person of the Trinity. He is holy in His character. He is holy in His essence. He is holy in His actions. He is truth. And He speaks truth. He is sovereign and ruling and reigning. And He goes on in verse 7 to say, He is the one who has the key of David. Now, that phrase is probably not familiar to you. It's a very unusual phrase, the key of David. It only shows up a few times in all of the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. But one of the places that it shows up is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 22. And let me tell you just a little bit of the context so you can get a sense of why Jesus is bringing this up. In Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah was prophesying to a number of different kings in the life of Israel. And there was a particularly bad, unfaithful steward to the king during that time. And Isaiah was talking about how that servant was going to be removed by God. And God was going to put a new steward for the king in place. A man by the name of Eliakim. And as he says, this new faithful servant who will serve the king and be a representative of the king is established. We read in Isaiah chapter 22 that Eliakim was dressed in royal garments, a sash 
in a robe. It was to signify to the people that he was the new steward of the king. He was the one through whom they would have access to the king. And we read in Isaiah chapter 22 that part of his royal garb representing the people was a little key that hung over his shoulder. And it was called the key of David. And it was a visual picture to the people that they had access to the king through Eliakim. Now that phrase shows up almost nowhere else in scripture until we get here. And so Jesus is saying to the people that Eliakim was a picture of himself who was to come. And now Jesus comes and he holds the ultimate key to David, the key of David. He is the one who holds ultimate access to God Almighty. And that's the reason why he says that he has opened the door. And the doors that he opens cannot be shut. He says that at the beginning of verse 8. He's telling them about the reality of the gospel going out and being proclaimed. The key that he possessed and the door that he opened was the door for the gospel to go forward into that place and indeed through them to the rest of the world. Paul uses that phrase open door several times in his letters. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 2 and Colossians 4. It's also used in Acts 14, and every single time that idea of an open door is used in those places, it's talking about the spread of the gospel as the door is opened by the one who holds the key, and that door can never be shut unless he shuts it himself. He is the one that's in control. He is the one who is sovereignly at work. He is the one that opens the door. He is the one that provides the opportunity for them. The reality of the gospel being proclaimed. He also tells them about the results of the gospel going out. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what's all of that about? Well, there's a historical part of what Jesus is addressing there. He's addressing their particular historical context. In that city, in the city of Philadelphia, there was a sizable Jewish synagogue. And we know from all kinds of different sources that toward the end of the first century, a shift really took place and the Jews, uh, in in a significant way, began to persecute the Christians. And here in Philadelphia, it is certainly the case that as particularly as Christians were being converted from Judaism, but also as Gentiles were putting their faith in Christ, they were being shut out of the synagogue. They were being kept out from that place where they could go and worship the one true God. And they were being persecuted. And so Jesus is telling them here, one of the results of the gospel going forward, of the door being open, of the gospel being proclaimed, is that those who were ethnic Jews, but not spiritually God's people would hear the gospel and would respond. There's some irony here. Back in Isaiah, several places, especially in Isaiah chapter 60, God had prophesied that through His people, the true Jewish people, the ones who are spiritually Jewish, so to speak, those who have been redeemed by God, God would bless the world and the Gentiles would come in. 
You see the irony of what's happening here. Here are the ethnic Jews, but those who are not actually God's people, according to what Jesus says, who are shutting out the true people of God. But he says, they will proclaim the gospel and you will come and honor them and you will hear the gospel. You will hear how I have loved them through Christ. This little church, we're told in in verse 8, is not powerful, but they're faithful in proclaiming the gospel. They are patiently enduring, we read. And as they proclaimed the gospel, they didn't deny Jesus. They didn't deny his word. He says that at the end of verse 8. And God, in his providence, because he is the one that opens doors, brought their enemies to them to learn the truth of the gospel, to learn about God's love and grace for his people. There was a lesson here for the people in Philadelphia. What he's telling them is, just be faithful. Go through the door that Jesus opens. He's in charge of the results. Don't worry about what will happen to you or as a result of the gospel being proclaimed. You just patiently and faithfully go through the door as I provide it to you. So there's a lesson here for us as well. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be knowledgeable. You just have to be faithful. Don't lose hope for your unbelieving friends and your unbelieving family. Simply watch for the open doors that the Lord provides. And when He provides them, go through them. Be faithful and patiently endure. The success and the results of that are not up to your abilities or your knowledge or your personalities. It's entirely the work of Jesus. The results that he tells them about are significant. He also gives them some resources for this gospel proclamation. We read about those in verses 10 and 11. These Christians in Philadelphia were dealing with all kinds of trials and persecutions and sufferings for their faith in Christ. They were going to be dealing with suffering and persecution for sharing the gospel to unbelievers in their city. And so Jesus gives them some reminders of these resources, these these encouragements that he provides to them. The first one's in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. They had already been going through trials and difficulty. But Jesus is telling them there are more that are coming. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But the encouragement, the resource that Jesus reminds them is that he is going to keep them through it. Now, there are some, uh, even brothers and sisters in Christ, that read verse 10 and they understand that what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is going to come and take them out of the world as the believing church so that they don't have to deal with the suffering and the trials and the tribulations. I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, In fact, uh, we will see in Revelation chapter 7 that Jesus will tell us that the hour of trials and tribulations is what happens for all of God's people between the first time that Jesus came and the second time that Jesus came. Before his first, between his first coming and his second coming, we now, in this moment, are living in the midst of trials and tribulations. 
And we also know that as Jesus prayed for not only his disciples in the first century, but for the future disciples, that's you and me. He prayed that God would not remove us from the world so that we wouldn't deal with trials and suffering. But he prayed for God in John 17 to provide for us and to sustain us through it. And then on top of that, when we read in chapter in verse 10, that because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. That can just as accurately be tra- translated as keep you through it. What Jesus is saying here, this resource that he's giving to them as they are in the midst of trials and suffering, as they are seeking to proclaim the gospel in their city, is that he's going to keep them through all of the trials and tribulations that they are going through and that they will experience in the future. He will strengthen them. He will protect them. He will preserve them. And he will bring them through it. And do you need proof of that? You could go to the city that exists today, Alashehir. Turkey, which is the city, the city of Philadelphia, even though the name has changed. And there are Bible-believing Christians in Bible-believing churches that trace their history all the way back to the first century. God's promise, His resource, His encouragement to them is that even though they are going to deal with difficulties for sharing the gospel, He will keep them through it. He will preserve them and he will get them through it. There's a second resource that Jesus mentions to them. It's at the beginning of verse 11. Not only is he going to keep them, but he says in verse 11, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And that was meant to fill them with hope and strength and resolve to hang in there. Keep going. Persevere in your faithful gospel proclamation. The end is in sight. You can see the finish line. Now, we recognize that as Jesus says these words, they came to that people a long time ago. And we think of that and think of that's not soon. But he's speaking from God's perspective. But it's also true for us how much closer we are to Jesus returning than when they read these words to begin with. And they're no less true. The finish line is coming. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And in the midst of our abilities and strengths and and, and attempts to try to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel, this is meant to encourage us and fill us with hope that Jesus is coming back. There are also some rewards that Jesus mentions here in verses 12 and 13, or promises, if you will, to again encourage them and to spur them on to to be faithful in their gospel proclamation. The first is in verse 12, the beginning of verse 12. There he says, the one who conquers. Now, who is the one who conquers? He's talking about the one who will persevere to the end, who will endure through all of these things. And, And we know through other parts of the Bible that those who conquer are the ones who God enables them and gives them the strength to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall he go out of it. This was a significant statement that Jesus was making to these Christians in Philadelphia. There are at least two reasons why the idea of them being made a pillar in the temple of God and never will they go out of it. Why that would have connected with them as a people. 
I told you at the very beginning, as we were thinking about this city, uh, that this city, Philadelphia, was located on volcanic fault lines. And so its history has dealt with earthquakes. And in 17 AD, there was a significant earthquake that struck the city and the city was destroyed. The buildings crumbled. People were killed as the building fell. Buildings fell on the people. And the city was rebuilt with money that came from the Roman emperor. And there were so many people that were afraid because of not just that earthquake, but the history of earthquakes that they had experienced, that a lot of them moved out of the city into the countryside. They would come into the city to do work and business and to socialize, but then they would go out into the countryside so that they could live in places that wouldn't, they wouldn't be afraid that would come down on their heads. So when Jesus tells them that he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of God and they will never have to go out of it again, it would have connected with them. This is a place of security. This is a place of stability. This is a place that they could look to of great encouragement. A day is coming, he says, when you will no longer have to worry about all of these worldly things that are happening. You will be safe and secure in nothing less than the eternal heavenly temple of God. And you will never have to leave it and never have to go out of it. There was another reason why this phrase of being a pillar in the temple of God and never having to go out of it would have been an encouragement to them, would have been significant to them. It was a visual illustration where he talks to them about being a pillar in God's temple. We've got pillars here, right? Columns. Uh, These are not as substantive columns in terms of the overall building of this room as many in the ancient culture would have experienced. Many of the big buildings with open spaces had columns and pillars in them, tabernacles and synagogues, but even civic buildings would have these very large columns. And it was a, a common practice in the ancient culture that the columns would be dedicated to the name of big donors that gave money to build those buildings. And so as these people were reading these words, it would have connected with them. They would have understood what Jesus was saying, the picture that he was giving to them. You're you're not just going to have your name honored on a pillar in a civic building. But what does he tell them? You are going to be the pillar in nothing less than the heavenly temple of God. What an encouragement to them. What What a reminder of the reward that is there for those who are faithful in Christ. They will, they will be the pillar. They will get that incredible reward. It was meant to encourage them to keep going, to keep sharing the gospel, to persevere and to endure in their gospel proclamation. There, there's another reward that Jesus mentions here. It's at the end of verse 12. Jesus says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the name Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Jesus promised that they would have a new name that was written on them. What was that name? Well, he mentions three different ones. The name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, heaven, and the name of Jesus. I don't think he's talking about three different names that we have to try to figure out exactly what it means. I think they're all pointing to the same truth. He's talking about this idea of having an identity and a a citizenship and authenticity. They would know forever and ever who it is that they belong to because they would have God's name written on them. That idea comes up at the very end of Revelation as well. 
Revelation chapter 21. If you want to turn there, it's just if you just go almost to the last page in your Bible, Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the book. It's going to take us a while before we actually get to Revelation 21, but listen to how these themes are repeating throughout this book. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see that common language. This is what he is telling them. This is what he is encouraging them with. This is the promise and the reward that he's telling them. This means enough to you that you should persevere and keep going. If you are in Christ and you persevere to the end, then no matter how bad life gets, no matter how hard the trials are, no matter how significant the persecution and suffering becomes, know this, there is real hope. The Lord will keep us. The finish line is approaching quickly. We are sure and certain of being in God's family, of being God's child, of being God's treasured possession, His beloved bride, His joy. And we will be with him and he will be with us forever. He's trying to encourage them. Press on. Don't give up. Keep sharing the gospel through your words and through your deeds. So let's finish by just thinking about a couple applications for us. Um, The first one is that every Christian needs to be ready. That's what we read earlier in our scripture passage from 1 Peter, is it not? 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. We should always be ready as God's people to talk about the hope that we have in Christ to share the message of the gospel of grace. It's something that every single one of us as God's people is called to be ready to do. It doesn't require some advanced degree in evangelism and apologetics. It doesn't require formal training, although that can be helpful. We all just need to be ready to explain the hope that we have in Christ. What we understand about the gospel of grace. And one of the very best ways that we can do that is a second takeaway for us today. And that is we need to learn how to ask good questions. I asked some of our resident local Francis Schaeffer experts this week about a quote that I've often heard but I've never been able to track down. And they assured me that although they hadn't actually seen him say it or seen it in print, they knew people that uh, had heard Schaefer say these very things. So this is certainly very authentic. And he said this about meeting with people that were hurting, people that were unbelievers. He said, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. That is often backwards from how we do it. 
We'll spend five minutes talking to somebody, if it's an unbeliever or somebody that's hurting, trying to understand what's going on, and then we bring the full power of the truth to bear, whether they want to hear it and are ready to hear it or not. And Schaefer's reminding us that we ought to flip that on its head, that we ought to be people who are ready and who are skilled and who are excited about asking questions about people, learning about their interests, learning about what their lives are about, learning what their hope is in. And then trusting that God, who is the one who is sovereignly at work, will open the door when the time is right. And we bring what is true. We bring the hope that we have that is anchored on the truth into that situation. Now, I'll just say to you that I think this is actually a pretty challenging thing for most of us. We're not good at asking questions. We're good at talking to people about our own lives. But we need to be people who are good at asking questions, who are genuinely interested in learning about other people. A third thing. Our theology is the antidote to our fear and our uncertainty about proclaiming the gospel. What we believe about who God is and what he does is the antidote to our fear and our uncertainty. God is sovereign. We've seen that even in this passage from verse 7. But we see it throughout the scriptures. And we also see in this passage and throughout the scriptures that God is not only sovereign, but He is at work. There's our theology. Do we actually believe that God is sovereign, that He is in control, and that He is at work? Because if we do, then it removes our fear and uncertainty of talking to others about the Christian faith. He's the one who is at work through that. He is the one who opens and closes doors. He is the one who opens and closes hearts and ears. If we believe this, then then it actually removes the anxiety that this is all up to us. It's about our abilities and our knowledge and our persuasiveness and our power to convince. And what the Bible teaches us is, no, our theology says, the Bible says that God is in charge, that He is in control, that He is sovereign. And that frees us up to simply be ourselves. To be genuinely interested in others, to ask questions and to look for open doors. And then lastly, I want us to reflect just for a moment on what's really behind our lack of of desire to proclaim the gospel to others and our lack of actually doing it. And I would suggest to you that what's really behind it is our hearts. At the core, we don't really love our neighbors as we do ourselves. We love more our own comfort and our own peace and our own ease of life than we love other people. It's not a coincidence that this church was in a city that was named Philadelphia. Literally, that name means city of brotherly love. The Philadelphia Presbyterian Church in this little city was a church of brotherly love and a city of brotherly love. And they loved their neighbors enough to tell them the good news of the gospel. Some of you are familiar with the name Penn and Teller. 
Penn and Teller are a a duo, two men. One's named Penn, one's named Teller, last names. And uh, they're magicians and they're comedians. And uh, largely in the 80s and 90s, although they still do some things today. Um, Very, very clearly not believers. Uh, Penn Gillette, uh, in fact, is a self-professed atheist. He's a very uh, winsome man. He's a good thinker. And he's intentionally an atheist. Uh, They are not Christians, and they can be a little bit raunchy. So I'm not suggesting that you go out and watch everything that they do. But there was an interesting thing that happened a few years ago. Uh, Penn Gillette, one of the two, uh, posted a video online about a situation that happened after one of their shows. He didn't say where it was, but after the show, a man came up to him and waited kind of uh, in the area around, uh, just kind of hovered around him until everybody was gone. And then he went up to, to Penn Gillette and he said, would it be okay if I give you something? And he pulled, and, and Gillette said, well, yeah, of course. And so he pulled out a little Gideon Bible, a New Testament and Psalms uh, version of the Bible, and he gave it to him. And on the inside cover, he had written his name and he had written five different contact numbers. And he said that he, he felt led to give it to him. He said, I want you to understand, I'm a Christian. I'm not crazy. I'm a Christian businessman. Uh, but I felt led to give you this as the truth. And I hope that you'll read it. And if you're willing that you would actually contact me, I'd be willing to be in communication with you about it. Well, that impacted Gillette so much as an as a intentional self-professed atheist that he went online and he posted a little video to describe his thoughts about this man coming and giving him this Bible. This is what Gillette said. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, proselytize is a big word, just basically means share the gospel. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, or if you're an atheist who thinks people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point which I tackle you and get you out of the way. And this is more important than that. Do we love people enough? To share the gospel of the greatest news that there is. And if we're honest and we search our hearts and the answer is no. No, I don't love people like that. I don't love people like I should. Then we ought to ask ourselves, how much have I been loved? Every single one of you in this room, if you're a professing believer in Christ, has had people in your life that loved you so much that they have taught you the gospel of grace. Whether it's from the time that you can remember or whether as an adult you've had people in your life, whether you know who they are or it was somebody on a train in some place that you don't even know their name, somebody loved you enough to share the gospel with you. And more than that, how much have you been loved by the Lord? All of these wonderful promises in, these, in this passage that he gives to us 
point us to the reality of God's love for us, God's grace and love for us through Jesus. And it is only through that grace and love that our hard hearts can be broken into. To the degree that we understand and believe the depth of God's love and grace to us, to that same extent, we'll start loving other people enough to trust the Lord to open doors. And then when that door is open, to go through it and be faithful in sharing the hope that we have in the gospel of God's grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Father, this letter that was written to these people so long ago was, I'm sure, such an encouragement to them as Jesus spoke these commendations and these good things to them. And I confess that as we read it now, I, I know it's, these are hard things for us to hear because there are many of us that struggle, struggle with a desire, struggle with an intention, struggle with motivation to actually be people who proclaim the gospel I pray that you would break through our hard hearts. That through the work of your spirit, you would take our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. That we truly would have hearts that break for unbelievers. To know the wonderful truth of your gospel. And then we pray, Father, that as you would enable us to do that, that you would overwhelm us with a response. That your spirit would be at work gathering your people into your kingdom through the proclamation of your gospel, even through our unpowerful and broken efforts. Would you do this for your glory and for the building up of your church? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Read to you those familiar words from Matthew chapter 26. As Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then just a quick reminder of what Jesus said as he wrote this letter to these people. The words of the Holy One, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is the Holy One. As we come to this table, we remember Jesus and who He is and what He's accomplished. He is the Holy One. He is the only one who lived a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father and then gave Himself as a sacrifice for us to pay a debt. A debt of sin that we could never pay on our own. He's also the true one. And so when Jesus said on the cross that his work was finished. That his redeeming work of giving his life for his people was finished and complete. That it was fully accomplished. That the payment of our sins was finished. And that the crediting of his righteousness to us was complete. He is speaking truth. Because he is true. And so we are to trust it and to believe it. And he is the one who has the key of David. Who opens to us what can never be shut. This table, the Lord's Supper. This sacrament is a sign and seal of that truth, of that promise. And as we participate, as we come as God's people. In faith, resting and trusting in Christ. We are communing with the Lord. 
So we're meant to remember these things. And we're also to be encouraged as the Holy Spirit will take what we're doing in faith and strengthen our faith that we might go out this week and be empowered and strengthened to be people who proclaim the gospel in word and deed. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've made a public profession of that faith in Christ, connecting yourself to the local body of believers, Trinity or another church that believes in God, believes and teaches God's word as true, then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink and be reminded of these wonderful promises of who God is for us and what he has accomplished for us and be strengthened. As you know, the Holy Spirit will be at work, not because of your strong faith. Come to him in faith, whether strong or weak, and you rest in him. But because of that faith, through the work of the Spirit, you'll be empowered and strengthened this week ahead. So let's pause and thank him for giving us this means of grace. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us through the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ and this visual picture of it, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. Encourage us in our hearts and minds. Motivate us in our very spirits that we might be filled with hope and peace and joy and we might be overwhelmed with the opportunity of telling others of this wonderful, glorious truth. Would you do this, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.